Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Michael Beerer. This week, May 16, 2019, we feature articles on an antibacterial envelope for cardiac devices, dabigatran in embolic stroke of unknown source, LIMS-1 genomic mismatch and kidney transplant rejection, and the inhibition of PI3K in breast cancer. A review article on muco-obstructive lung diseases, a case report of a man with jaundice, and perspective articles on the power and limits of classification, on big data and the intelligence community, and on facilitated self-service in healthcare. Doctor, should I keep taking an aspirin a day? A new clinical decisions about aspirin for persons at risk for cardiovascular disease offers a case vignette accompanied by essays that either support or discourage the use of aspirin for primary prevention of coronary heart disease and stroke. Visit NEJM.org to participate. Antibacterial Envelope to Prevent Cardiac Implantable Device Infection by Khaldun Tarakji from the Cleveland Clinic, Ohio. Infections after placement of cardiac implantable electronic devices, IEDs, are associated with substantial morbidity and mortality. This randomized trial evaluated the safety and efficacy of an absorbable antibiotic-eluting envelope in reducing the incidence of infection associated with cardiac IED implantations in 6,983 patients undergoing this procedure. Standard of care strategies to prevent infection were used in all patients. The primary endpoint of infection resulting in systemic extraction or revision, long-term antibiotic therapy with infection recurrence, or death within 12 months after the implantation procedure, occurred in 25 patients in the envelope group and in 42 patients in the control group. 12-month Kaplan-Meier estimated event rate, 0.7% and 1.2%, respectively. The safety endpoint occurred in 201 patients in the envelope group and 236 patients in the control group. 12-month estimated event rate, 6.0% and 6.9%, respectively. The mean duration of follow-up was 20.7 months. Major cardiac IED-related infections through the entire follow-up period occurred in 32 patients in the envelope group and 51 patients in the control group, hazard ratio 0.63. Adjunctive use of an antibacterial envelope resulted in a significantly lower incidence of major cardiac IED infections than standard-of-care infection prevention strategies alone without a higher incidence of complications. Federico Perez from the Case Western Reserve University Veterans Affairs Center, Cleveland, writes in an editorial that infections involving cardiac IEDs are challenging to treat. Primary infections, mostly pocket infections occurring at the time of implantation, usually require removal of the device, thus adding to the cost and morbidity associated with cardiac IEDs. Secondary infections resulting from bacteremia from a remote source often lead to endocarditis with additional devastating outcomes. Despite the effectiveness of current standard strategies for prevention of cardiac IED infections, the potential to achieve further reductions in infection rates exists. 
the absorbable multifilament mesh envelope described in the study by Tarakchi and colleagues elutes the antibiotics minocycline and rifampin, aiming to achieve sufficient concentrations in surrounding tissues to prevent infection with bacterial flora residing on the skin. Did the antibiotic eluting envelope protect against cardiac IED infections? The answer is clear. The use of this envelope, in addition to standard procedures, significantly reduced the incidence of major infection without increasing other complications. The results enhance the findings from a meta-analysis of observational studies, which supports the use of antibiotic envelopes to prevent cardiac IED infections. The findings of this study support the local application of minocycline and rifampin as an adjuvant to prevent infection at the surgical site at the time of device placement. In many ways, antibiotic-eluting envelopes provide an ounce of prevention. Dabigatran for Prevention of Stroke After Embolic Stroke of Undetermined Source by Hans-Christoph Diener from the University Duisburg-Essen, Essen, Germany. Cryptogenic strokes constitute 20 to 30% of ischemic strokes, and most cryptogenic strokes are considered to be embolic and of undetermined source. This trial compared dabigatran at a dose of 150 mg or 110 mg twice daily with aspirin at a dose of 100 mg once daily in 5,390 patients who had had an embolic stroke of undetermined source. The primary outcome was recurrent stroke. The primary safety outcome was major bleeding. During a median follow-up of 19 months, recurrent strokes occurred in 6.6% of patients in the dabigatran group, 4.1% per year, and in 7.7% of patients in the aspirin group, 4.8% per year. Ischemic strokes occurred in 172 patients, 4% per year, and 203 patients, 4.7% per year, respectively. Major bleeding occurred in 77 patients, 1.7% per year in the dabigatran group, and in 64 patients, 1.4% per year in the aspirin group. Clinically relevant non-major bleeding occurred in 70 patients, 1.6% per year, and 41 patients, 0.9% per year, respectively. In patients with a recent history of embolic stroke of undetermined source, dabigatran was not superior to aspirin in preventing recurrent stroke. The incidence of major bleeding was not greater in the dabigatran group than in the aspirin group, but there were more clinically relevant non-major bleeding events in the dabigatran group. Genomic Mismatch at LIMS-1 Locus and Kidney Allograph Rejection by Nicholas Steers from Columbia University, New York. In the context of kidney transplantation, genomic incompatibilities between donor and recipient may lead to allosensitization against new antigens. These investigators hypothesized that recessive inheritance of gene-disrupting variants may represent a risk factor for allograft rejection. They performed a two-stage genetic association study of kidney allograft rejection. In the discovery cohort, which included 705 recipients, the investigators found a significant association with allograft rejection at the LIMS-1 locus, hazard ratio with the risk genotype versus non-risk genotypes, 
1.84. This effect was replicated under the genomic collision model in three independent cohorts involving a total of 2,004 donor-recipient pairs, hazard ratio 1.55. In the combined analysis, discovery cohort plus replication cohorts, the risk genotype was associated with a higher risk of rejection than the non-risk genotype, hazard ratio 1.63. The investigators identified a specific antibody response against LIMS-1, a kidney-expressed protein encoded within the collision locus. The response involved predominantly IgG2 and IgG3 antibody subclasses. These investigators found that the LIMS-1 locus appeared to encode a minor histocompatibility antigen. Genomic collision at this locus was associated with rejection of the kidney allograft and with production of anti-LIMS1, IgG2, and IgG3. Alpalisib for PIK3CA mutated hormone receptor positive advanced breast cancer by Fabrice André from the Institut Gustave Roussy, Villejuif, France. PIK3CA mutations occur in approximately 40% of patients with hormone receptor HR-positive human epidermal growth factor receptor 2, HER2, negative breast cancer. This phase 3 trial compared the PI3K-alpha-specific inhibitor alpalisib plus fulvestrant with placebo plus fulvestrant in 572 patients with HR-positive HER2-negative advanced breast cancer who had received endocrine therapy previously. In the cohort of patients with PIK3CA mutated cancer, progression-free survival at a median follow-up of 20 months was 11 months in the alpalisib fulvestrant group as compared with 5.7 months in the placebo fulvestrant group. In the cohort without PIK3CA mutated cancer, the hazard ratio was 0.85. Overall response among all the patients in the cohort with PIK3CA mutated cancer was greater with alpalisib than with placebo, 26.6% versus 12.8%. Among patients with measurable disease in this cohort, the percentages were 35.7% and 16.2% respectively. The most frequent adverse events with alpalisib were hyperglycemia, gastrointestinal toxic effects, and rash. The percentages of patients who discontinued alpalisib and placebo owing to adverse events were 25% and 4.2% respectively. Treatment with alpalisib fulvestrant prolonged progression-free survival among patients with PIK3CA mutated HR-positive HER2-negative advanced breast cancer who had received endocrine therapy previously. Mucoobstructive Lung Diseases, a review article by Richard Boucher from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. A spectrum of lung diseases that affect the airways, including chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, cystic fibrosis, primary ciliary dyskinesia, and non-cystic fibrosis bronchiectasis, can be characterized as mucoobstructive diseases. These diseases have the clinical features of cough, sputum production, and episodic exacerbations that are often associated with a diagnosis of chronic bronchitis. 
However, neither chronic bronchitis nor hypersecretory diseases adequately describes the diffuse mucus obstruction, airway wall ectasia, chronic inflammation, and bacterial infection that are typical of these conditions. Therefore, mucoobstructive may be a preferred descriptive term. In healthy persons, a well-hydrated mucus layer is transported rapidly at a rate of approximately 50 micrometers per second from the distal airways toward the trachea. In mucoobstructive diseases, epithelial defects in ion fluid transport, mucin secretion, or a combination of these lead to hyperconcentrated, dehydrated mucus, failed mucus transport, and mucus adhesion to airway surfaces. Mucus that is accumulated in the trachea can be expectorated by cough as phlegm or sputum. Mucus in the small airways cannot be cleared by cough and accumulates, forming the nidus for airflow obstruction, infection, and inflammation. This review covers the normal mechanisms of mucus formation and how they are abnormal in common conditions, such as COPD, that are characterized by excessive mucus in the airways. A 55-year-old man with jaundice, a case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Esperance, Schaefer, and colleagues. A 55-year-old man with a history of opioid use disorder and hepatitis C virus infection presented to the hospital with jaundice. Four months earlier, the patient was released from prison after a two-year incarceration. After he left prison, he resumed injecting heroin and had three episodes of overdose. During an admission at another hospital, sublingual buprenorphine naloxone therapy was initiated. Three weeks before the current presentation, dark urine and lightheadedness developed and did not improve with increased fluid consumption. The patient also noticed slow thinking and arthralgias in the hands, wrists, and elbows. One week before the current presentation, the patient noticed yellowing of the eyes and skin. A week later, when he was seen by his primary care provider, he was immediately transported by ambulance to the emergency department of this hospital. On evaluation, the alanine aminotransferase level was 2,698 units per liter, the aspartate aminotransferase level 2,869 units per liter, and the total bilirubin level 21.6 milligrams per deciliter. Daily measurements of the alanine aminotransferase level and prothrombin time revealed a steady decline. This patient had severe acute liver injury and probable viral hepatitis. The diagnosis depended entirely on the results of serologic tests, the results of which were diagnostic of acute hepatitis B and hepatitis delta virus co-infection. The Power and Limits of Classification A 32-Year-Old Man with Abdominal Pain a perspective article by Daphna Strumza from the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Sam, a 32-year-old transgender man, presented to the emergency department with severe lower abdominal pain and hypertension. The triage nurse noted that he was an obese man who appeared comfortable between bouts of pain. He had previously used testosterone as well as antihypertensives, both of which he had discontinued because he'd lost his insurance coverage. He had taken a home pregnancy test that morning and got a positive result. He added that he had peed himself that morning. 
the triage nurse assessed him to be a man with abdominal pain who had not taken his prescribed blood pressure medications. Determining that his condition was stable, she triaged him to non-urgent assessment. Several hours later, an emergency physician noted the positive results of the serum HCG test. On examination, she noted that his abdomen was not only obese, but also gravid. The evaluation had changed. The patient had severe abdominal pain, possible ruptured membranes, and hypertension in advanced pregnancy, which suggested possible labor, placental abruption, or preeclampsia, urgent conditions presenting a potential emergency. In Sam's evaluation, the triage nurse did not fully absorb the fact that he did not fit clearly into a binary classification system with mutually exclusive male and female categories. In medicine, classification provides powerful tools for diagnosis. However, classifications, including those of race and sex, often fail to capture complexity, preventing practitioners from taking the best course of action. Big Data and the Intelligence Community Lessons for Healthcare a perspective article by Kevin Vigilante from Booz Allen Hamilton, McLean, Virginia. The recent explosion of health data promises to transform healthcare by improving care quality and population health and by constraining escalating costs. But substantial obstacles remain. Many of these data are unstructured, and the wide variety of taxonomies and formats makes data sharing and integration challenging. The healthcare industry's legacy data management technologies require time-consuming and labor-intensive data modeling and cleansing. Moreover, these tools must be designed with a specific set of questions in mind, and adding or transforming variables or incorporating unstructured objects, such as images and audio files into data stores, can be difficult. Such limitations make it challenging to take advantage of the value of big data. Healthcare is lagging behind other industries in its approaches to data science, in part because it is relatively new to big data. In an effort to accelerate progress, experts have frequently exhorted healthcare leaders to learn from commercial data titans such as Amazon, Google, and Netflix. It is less common to hear that healthcare should emulate the intelligence community. But these authors believe these agencies have much to teach. By learning from the intelligence community, the health sector can accelerate progress and capitalize on existing innovations. Toward Facilitated Self-Service in Healthcare, a perspective article by David Ash from the University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. A visitor from another planet observing earthly efforts to improve healthcare might conclude that experts in the United States believe that healthcare can be transformed using a combination of alternative payment systems, patient-centered care, and iPads. Each of these tools is appealing. Alternative payment systems diverge from the fee-for-service systems that encourage overuse. Patient-centered care means designing systems around customer needs, an approach that is largely new to medicine. And iPads reflect the digital transformation that has graced so many other industries and that would have seemingly obvious benefits for healthcare. So far, however, these strategies have had limited success. The fundamental approaches to managing hypertension, diabetes, and chronic lung diseases have remained the same 
for 50 years. The drugs are better, but the way patients engage with doctors during office visits and hospital stays is unchanged. In other industries, aligned financial incentives, better customer centricity, and technology have been motivating and enabling forces for change. But the transformations themselves came from operational changes that enhanced productivity, mostly by finding ways to use fewer people. The physician patient encounter is healthcare's choke point. So long as we continue to think of healthcare as a service that happens when patients connect with doctors, we shackle ourselves to a system in which increased patient needs must be met with more doctors. Our Images in Clinical Medicine features a 51 year old woman with autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease who presented to the primary care clinic with mild worsening of chronic abdominal pain. No jaundice was found on physical examination. The liver was enlarged, and the patient had mild tenderness in the right upper quadrant and in the flanks on both sides. Murphy's sign was absent. Laboratory studies showed mildly elevated levels of aspartate aminotransferase and alanine aminotransferase. Innumerable cysts were found on abdominal ultrasonography. The gallbladder could not be visualized. MR cholangiopancreatography was performed and revealed a markedly enlarged liver with numerous cystic structures. No signs of intracystic hemorrhage, rupture, or infection were found. The presentation was not consistent with acute cholecystitis. In autosomal dominant polycystic kidney disease, cysts can develop in a range of sites, including the liver, pancreas, and seminal vesicles. The patient was treated with intravenous hydration and analgesia, and the pain decreased. At a one year follow up visit, no additional complications or new symptoms had developed. The patient continued to have occasional abdominal pain. A 60 year old man presented to the otorhinolaryngology clinic with a feeling of nasal obstruction and postnasal drip that had developed 10 years earlier and had worsened over the past month. He also had a sensation of a foreign body in his throat. Symptoms worsened when he was lying flat. On physical examination, no deviation of the nasal septum or hypertrophy of the inferior turbinates was detected. Nasopharyngoscopy revealed a smooth pink cystic mass in the midline of his nasopharynx, with no obstruction of the openings to the eustachian tubes. CT of the head revealed a 2.5 cm by 1.3 cm by 1.4 cm cystic tumor in the midline of the nasopharynx without intracranial extension. The findings were consistent with Tornwald's cyst, a benign cyst that arises between the roof of the nasopharynx and the remnant of the notochord. Because the patient was symptomatic, he underwent surgical marsupialization of the cyst. On follow up examination three months after surgery, he no longer had the sensation of a foreign body in his throat. His nasal symptoms were reduced, and there was no recurrence of the cyst. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our audio summaries. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.